Let's pray together. Lord, if you were not there, there would be no point in singing to you. It would be a farce. It would be sad. But we pray and we praise and we seek the wisdom and seek the life of the God who is and the God who is here. Thank you. Help us now to hear your word, maybe as we've never heard it before, with open hearts and open minds, and only you can do that. And I pray that you would so that people would know the great love of Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Good morning. If you have any room in your row, can we have one more SOS? Everybody here? I have bad news. There's room on the front row. There's six seats on the front row. If you are brave and courageous, come on down. I'll give you a second. You may be in the most crowded room this church has ever seen. I'm glad you're here. My name's Bruce Garner, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the third final, and I trust the best Easter celebration of the weekend. So glad that you're here. You're my favorites. You know that, right? 1030 service. (laughs) I say that on alternating weekends to every service, so. When I came here with uh, my family from Mexico, uh, an older, slightly older friend took me aside and said, Bruce, I know how happy you are to be here and how hard you're going to jump into this, so let me just tell you to take time for your kids. Don't be gone all the time. Go to their games. Be part of their lives. They'll be gone and out of your house before you know it. And at the time, I thought, these are the ramblings of a demented old man, right? (laughs) I'm really young, they're tiny, we're fine. And then I turned around and they're big. If you know my kids, one of them is as tall as me, the other's a good bit taller. They're both stronger, obviously far better looking, you know, it's... It's a humbling time, and it did go very quickly. It's such a cliche, but they do grow up so fast. And I'm getting nostalgic in my late 40s. I'm thinking back to those days and thinking how every season has its joys. Believe it or not, the diapers you may not miss, but all the other cute, fun things that come along with the diaper season, you'll miss that, and you'll miss so much of it, and it all goes so quickly. I've been thinking about firsts that I've enjoyed with my children. And that got me thinking about something, a survey I've asked congregations all over the place regarding first words from children. What's the first statement most kids make, in your opinion? What do they say first? Mama, Mama, and shortly after that, they learn to say, no. (laughs) And so the battle begins. That's a statement. What's the first question most kids ask? Everywhere I've been, everywhere I've asked that question, it's always the same. They acknowledge mom and dad, and as soon as they know who they are, they say no. And if they don't feel like making a statement, they ask a question and say, why? And then sometimes you just cave and say, because I said so, and I'm five times your size, and I pay for all this, right? saw a good friend say to his tiny little daughter who can't quite speak yet, as she did her thing, he said, we've been over this. (laughs) Yeah, send her an email, buddy. Put it in writing. That'll, That'll help. 
Make her acknowledge receipt that she's understood your stipulations. <laughs> but the no's and the why's never stop. As we get older, hopefully we get better at saying no and being polite about it. And the why's, that might be the most important question of all. There's a British-American author and consultant works for the Rand Corporation named Simon, Simon Sinek who set the world on fire with a book a little while ago called Start With Why. In other words, life makes sense if you can answer the whys. And so it is with Easter. See, Easter's a funny thing. A lot of people are here, and I'll just acknowledge that. I, I don't know who you are, but I know some of you are here under social obligation. Your mother played... Don't look at her right now. It'll ruin your lunch. <laughs> your mother played the guilt card. And she said, just this one time, if you would honor me in the months you were in my womb and come to church with me just this one time, it won't kill you. I don't know how many of these more we'll have to enjoy together, right? The ultimate guilt. <laughs> and here you are. And maybe your only why is because mom played those cards, so here I am. And maybe I'll be back next year, maybe I won't. I want to tell you the why of Easter. If you understand the why of what we're celebrating, it's literally life-changing. It was life-changing for people who knew Jesus, who didn't believe it, and who didn't want to believe it. It was life-changing for people who fought against it, like Paul, who may have been the most religious and scrupulous man of his day, one of the chief practitioners of the most ultra-Orthodox form of Judaism in the first century. Paul thought the whole thing was a hoax, and then he met Jesus, and his entire life turned around just like that. In fact, he eventually let them kill him for Jesus instead of taking the story back and saying he was sorry, or he made it up, or maybe it wasn't true. All of the people around Jesus were like that. Even into the second and third generation after Jesus, as the message spread from family to family and friend to friend, people in his day became so convinced that this was real that they would rather die than take the story back. And the easiest thing in the world sometimes, in the ancient world, is persecution engulfed the first Christians, is to do the smallest symbolic act to say that you would get along. And they famously refused all the way to facing the famous lions in the Colosseum. Now, why is that? To answer the question, I want to use the historical documents that tell us about the life of Jesus. It's probably the longest Easter reading we've ever had, and I'd love for you to have a Bible. So turn your Bible on if you have it on your phone. Please turn off the notifications. We were treated to a nice salsa number a few weekends ago, and that was bad for everybody. If you have a paper Bible with you, good for you. If you need one, there should be one in a seat near you. Don't, don't be shy. Elbow your neighbor if you need to because we're looking at a long reading in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke carries that name because it was written by a first century medical doctor by that name. The Gospel of Luke takes the form of a letter actually. That Luke is writing to a friend of his named Theophilus, a Greek name in a Greek writing culture. And Luke is a historian. 
You have four Gospels, four historical ancient documents that tell you the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and John were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. Mark was a close companion of the apostle Peter. Luke alone was the only one who evidently did not know Jesus himself. In the first lines of his gospel, he explains to Theophilus that he wants to write down in an orderly fashion everything that happened regarding Jesus so that Theophilus will know with certainty what has happened that has so shaken the ancient world in his day. So we're going to read the last chapter in his gospel. It tells the resurrection story. If you read it carefully, you're going to find irony and humor, a little bit of sarcasm. You're going to discover that Jesus has a sense of humor. You're going to discover also that he can be impatient with people because of their unwillingness or inability to see what he has been telling them all along. And the point of all this is the first reason we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Here it is. The resurrection of Jesus, just like his entire life, was public. It really happened. And it happened in public. That's why this historical document is so important. And there's no doubt that Luke wrote this. There's very little debate at this point whether Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually wrote the, re the words you can read in your Bible. Whether you care to believe them or not, that's another story. But whether they wrote this and whether they meant this, that is actually beyond reasonable question at this point. And it's an incredibly well-attested, well-documented ancient piece of writing. In fact, the most well-attested, the most well-documented piece of ancient writing in the history of the world. Let me give you a comparison. You've all heard of Julius Caesar. Maybe watched a gladiator movie. Has it ever occurred to you or has anyone ever told you that Julius Caesar never really lived? Something that is sometimes said about Jesus. Not really by very serious people anymore. Here's why I'm bringing Julius Caesar up. When we dig into the ancient history of Julius Caesar to know all about his life, we rely on 12 ancient manuscripts. Twelve handwritten documents tell us the life of Julius Caesar and that settles it. We have 12 written records from something that happened so long ago. It's a slam dunk. This happened. This is real. This is what he said. This is what he did. And they weren't written anywhere near his own lifetime. The earliest documents they have regarding Julius Caesar come 900 years after his lifetime. And nobody ever questions, nobody ever tells you in high school that Julius Caesar, I don't know, it's just 12 little manuscripts and they were written almost 1,000 years after the man's life. No, in the ancient world, before digital media, before the printing press, to have 12 manuscripts, even 900 years later, it's, it's done, it's over, this really happened. So what happens with the New Testament? Not only the Gospels, but the New Testament, the collection of 27 books, by the time the printing press rolls around, you have over 5,800 manuscripts. And the Gospels of Jesus... All the writings in the New Testament were written within the lifetime of the people who knew him. In other words, they started writing it down almost immediately, and they copied those manuscripts like crazy. Why? Because it was so astonishing in the world of that day that this had actually happened that it went viral. 
And since they couldn't forward email, they couldn't send things up to the cloud, they wrote it down, they translated it into every language of the ancient world, and those manuscripts got passed around and read and often memorized all over the place because it was such an earth-shattering event. See, as we read this supernatural text, which Luke really meant and which Luke went on to suffer for, you're going to have to account for some biases and fight off some bias as you go through it. The first is a bias against the supernatural. Because we've got an intellectual project in this country about 200 years old now that says if it can't be explained by physical matter, it doesn't exist and it doesn't matter, it's not real. That's one of it. But there is a God who made everything that is in this finely tuned, beautiful universe points right back to his existence. And what these people are telling you in their own day is we met God himself. We met his son, Jesus, and this is what he said and did. And they wrote it down, and then they went on to die for it because they believed so deeply it was true. The other bias you'll have to fight against is a bias against things that happened a long time ago. We move at the age of the internet, we move at the speed of Twitter now. Things that happened three days ago are already forgotten. So if you're hearing about ancient people who lived 2,000 years talk about the world, maybe they don't have any idea what they're talking about. Here's the quiet bias. Maybe they're stupid or foolish or easily confused. May I suggest to you that ancient people knew exactly what death looked like? May I further suggest that they actually were more familiar with death than we are? People died so brutally, so young, and without all the clean, cozy, disguising things we put around death, these people who were drawn from every walk of life, Luke's a physician, Matthew's a tax collector, John is a fisherman, they knew what death looked like, and here's the story. And notice how public it is. Luke 24, verse 1 says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, and these are women, as you'll find out as you keep reading, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. What's this about? Jesus was, the body of Jesus was taken off the cross in haste. He was not given a proper Jewish burial. And these women are going early on a Sunday morning to see if they can do that. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, and that's real, because what do we know happens to dead people who are buried? What tends to happen with dead and buried people? For sure, they tend to stay dead, and they almost always tend to stay buried. They're going hoping against hope that they can give one final act of honor and devotion to the body of Jesus. The tomb is open. They can't explain it. They go in. They find it empty. They can't explain that either. And some messengers were left behind them, the first miracle of this reading, to tell them what's going on. Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Notice, here's the public piece. 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. That's huge. Jesus called his shot. He told them over and over and over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, you're going to see me killed, but don't worry, I'm taking my life back. He said in the Gospel of John, no one takes it from me, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to pick it up again. And those are either the rantings of a madman or a sincerely deluded person, or the Son of God, because who predicts his own death over and over and over again and does it unless he truly is acting as God on earth? And these messengers, these angels, are reminding the women of something that they've already heard. Why can't they believe it? Why doesn't it snap immediately into Why doesn't the picture snap into focus for them? Because they're just like you. You expect the dead to stay dead. You go to a funeral to honor the dead and to comfort the living. You don't expect to have a conversation with the center of attention. They're grappling with all this. They're having a hard time with it. But the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is all public. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. Those are his apostles. Remember, Judas betrayed him and committed suicide in regret. And to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Why are their names mentioned? Why are these obscure names mentioned? Because they were the ones that saw it happen. Luke's recording history. Theophilus has never met them, but they're part of the historical record. These are the stories that are spreading. These are the very women who saw him, and they went to the eleven and told them all about it, and now these hand-chosen, personally loved, carefully trained men are going to compose the first Easter song and sing a praise to Jesus, right? Because the women have told them this good news. Did you see what happened to them? This is another one of those embarrassing things that are in the Bible because they actually happened. Look at verse 11. But these words seem to them, to the apostles, an idle tale. And what's it say? Of course they didn't believe them. These are grown men. It's likely that most of their parents are dead. Their grandparents certainly are. They've lost friends. Maybe they have siblings who died young. They know what death is. So when these women come back in all of their excitement and all of their joy, the apostles go, ah, what are you, crazy? You getting enough sleep? Listen, we're all upset, but there's no need to make up stories. I don't know what they said to them, but it must have been something skeptical. It must have been something like that. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, good old impulsive Peter. He at least tries to check it out. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. It's going to get much more public as we keep reading. Watch. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Notice, he has a sense of humor. Watch how this conversation goes. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? 
And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Hear the condescension? You're new around here, huh, guy? (laughs) And Jesus is hearing about himself and understanding and checking what they believe and what they understand about everything he ever promised them. It's public. See, this is one of the important things to know at this point in your evaluation of Jesus. Every other person who has ever claimed to speak for God or just have an understanding of spiritual reality, all of those revelations are private. Whether it's a New Age guru doing readings somewhere or some guy in Santa Fe, New Mexico giving you crystals, or it's major world religions whose names are well known and have hundreds of millions of people following them, all of those religious claims have this in common. Someone had a private experience and they told the world. And you're in a really bad position to say that they didn't hear that because you weren't there. Maybe they did dream that. I had a guy just outside this church tell me he was God himself. I expressed skepticism and then he wanted to fight, which you know, really kind of undermined his claim. (laughs) But that's the nature of so many spiritual discussions and revelations, whether it's just a guru with a handful of people or hundreds of millions of people doing religious rituals, they're all responding to the private revelation of a single person that cannot be proven or disproven. Jesus is doing something very different. His entire life has been public. From the time he stepped forward and started going to the synagogue on the Saturdays and started teaching and preaching and doing astonishing things like feeding a crowd of 15 or 20,000 people in a, in a seaside location, everything he ever said and did was deliberately public. And now he's doing in public exactly as he promised and people very understandably can't get their mind around it. Jesus said to them, what things? They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. In other words, there it is, it's public. We thought he spoke for God. We saw him do things that we could only explain by God. But here's what they're sad about. Verse 20, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. That was public. That was well known. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Do they seem confused to you? They're sad and confused. Their lives don't make any sense. They had put such hopes on Jesus. Now watch Jesus step in and begin to correct their understanding. He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Remember this word. Was it not necessary 
that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that's the sermon you'd really like to hear, not this one. There are 39 books in your Old Testament. Jesus had a Bible himself, the Hebrew Scriptures, beginning with the books of Moses, moving through the Psalms of David and the words of all the prophets written some 700 years before Jesus was born. That was public. That was well known, and by the time Jesus appears on the earth, it had been translated into the common language of the day, and people who were Gentiles knew all about the prophecies, the Psalms, and the law of Moses. And Jesus said, it's all public. Everything that was written about me was already in print. It was already being passed around in these carefully guarded manuscripts. It was available in every synagogue. People, anyone, Jew or Gentile, could hear all of this about me week after week after week after week. 400 years before Jesus was born, Roughly, these manuscripts made it into the common language of the ancient world. Everybody could hear about these prophecies and these promises and these predictions. And now Jesus is moving right through the very Bible you hold in your hands from Genesis to Malachi and saying, it's all about me. That's going public. That's staking your claim. That's putting it beyond any kind of reasonable doubt. So they drew near to the village where they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Wow, what's that about? He's not only showing up, he's showing off. You're going to see Jesus do a couple more miraculous things and what he wants them to understand in ways that they cannot explain by any natural means is that this miraculous Son of God is really back. And he's doing what he's always done. He's doing things that can only be explained by the identity and the work of God himself. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Are you getting this? They're talking about him and he just walks in. And they're scared to death. So what's he say? He says what Jesus always says to troubled people. He speaks peace to them. Look, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. What would they have looked like? Wounded, pierced, freshly scarred. You could see from one side to the other because the Romans had killed him on an actual cross. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took and ate it before them. What's he doing? 
He's being very kind. He's being very patient. And he's showing them that it's the same man they knew before he was dead. He's eating with them. And he'll do it more than once. That's why Luke will say later that Jesus showed himself alive through many proofs that cannot be contradicted, that are beyond any doubt. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and here's where he gets down to us, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. What is going on here? Jesus is going public. He's doing everything an actual person could do in the ancient world to establish a fact so that any honest, humble person who looked into it would know for sure that it happened. There wasn't digital media, but there was an explosion of writing and there was an explosion of loving and acting and sacrificing because men and women of all kinds, both wealthy and poor, free and slaves, all were so transformed by the public ministry of Jesus that they would rather suffer, lose their families, lose their jobs, and in many cases lose their lives rather than go back and deny what Jesus had publicly done. One of the greatest indications that this actually happened was the first person, the first persons who saw Jesus back from the dead. Did you notice who they were? They were women. Now, why does that matter? Because in the ancient world, a word, the word of a woman was not worth much. Jesus never treated that woman, that woman that way. He always dignified them. Through his gospel, it has transformed at least the Western world and wherever Christianity has gone, the status of women has always risen to the place where God put it in the first place. But in the ancient world, to depend upon the testimony of a woman was nonsense. If you were going to make up a story for whatever reason, you wouldn't want to make your first witnesses women because their word wasn't worth anything in the ancient world. I'm not being mean, I'm being historical. Brace for misogyny. Let me show you something spoken by one of the first opponents of Christianity. Celsus was a second century philosopher who absolutely hated Christianity. And here's how he discounted these well-known public facts about Jesus. After death, Celsus wrote, he rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. There it is. After he died, he rose again and showed the wounds in his body. Here's his answer. Here's why he doesn't believe it. But who saw this? A hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. Now, why in the world would God make the first witnesses of the resurrection of his son women for love? Why is it written that way? Because that's the way it happened. God isn't making anything up. He's giving public witness through men and women of all kinds that this is a real event, that this has actually happened. Here's Paul's testimony. Years later, this former opponent and enemy to death of Christianity was later converted, and he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 
to people as Gentiles who he previously would have had nothing for contempt for, he gave them the good news and later wrote them this letter and said this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the good news. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The Scriptures that everybody knew, Jesus died for our sins just as they said, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day, also in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve as they were known, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, some have died. It's huge. Did you notice he says that he appeared to 500 people at once? That's 500 eyewitnesses. Let's put that in modern terms. If you could take 500, the judge wouldn't allow it. They don't have the time. But if you had 500 eyewitnesses to speak on your behalf, to give two minutes, two minutes of eyewitness testimony to say that you were telling the truth, do you think you'd win that case? If you gave them two minutes each, that's 16 and a half hours of people saying the same thing about you. The judge would say after an hour or two, okay, I got it, you're all saying the same thing. Everybody agree with that? Yeah, say 500 people, okay, we believe you. It's just beyond doubt. Why? Because Jesus was going public. But it's much more important than it being done in public. Here's the heart of the message. Listen, I'm almost done. It's purposeful. He wasn't acting randomly. He wasn't just doing amusing things. He wasn't merely feeding the poor and the hungry. He was doing that, but he was doing his whole life, right up to his death, right up to his resurrection, all of it, from beginning to end, from his birth, which Luke tells you about in such rich detail, to his miraculous public life, to his public execution on a Roman cross, to his amazing, almost impossible to leave resurrection. It was all purposeful because the point that Jesus had in mind is to save us from what has been mentioned a couple times in this passage, to save us from sin and death. Listen to the sadness in the voices in those disciples on the way to Emmaus. They said, we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Here's Jesus explaining it. Luke 24, 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? The most important word there is the word necessary. This all happened in public, Jesus said, because it was necessary. We're celebrating something that Jesus said had to happen. Why did it have to happen? Because of the things he, he says at the very end. He says, now you're witnesses and I want you to go out and tell people everywhere to repent and receive the forgiveness of their sins. Repent is altogether a churchy word, but it actually has a very simple meaning. It's literally a U-turn in the language of the New Testament. It's a turning around. It's a recognizing you're wrong and turning around and going the other way. In very simple childlike terms, as it was explained to me as a kid, it's telling God you're sorry for your sin. And sin is at the heart of this. The spiritual battle that's being waged in some of your hearts right now, whether to believe Jesus or not. Because let's be clear, I'm just the reporter. 
It's not really about whether you believe me. Jesus said at the end, you are witnesses. That's all I am. I'm a witness. And let me tell you what kind of witness I am. I'm a dying man preaching to dying people. Your life is fragile. Your life is short. And that's not preacher rhetoric to scare you. That's just an actual reality that everyone comes to grip with. But we have this amazing capacity for denial. Have you noticed? I once counseled a very elderly person. She was almost 100 herself, and a friend her age had died. And she very sadly said to me regarding her, I think, 103-year-old friend, I just don't understand why these things have to happen. And you're laughing because you're thinking to yourself, well, hon, as you reach nearly 100 and as your friend passed 100, what did you think was going to happen? But we all have this amazing capacity for pushing the thought of death away. Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator of all things, He knew how real death was. He experienced it for you. That's why it says it was necessary for him to die. That's why Moses and the prophets and the Psalms all spoke of the necessary thing that the Son of God would do. The reality is, and your conscience tells you so every day, you're blowing it. I didn't come to church to be insulted. Yeah, I know that. I'm not insulting you. I'm telling you the truth. I blow it. My conscience speaks against me every day of my life. The Bible explains that. It says that God has written His law on our hearts. That's why children from the very earliest age can do evil things and hide it. Have you noticed? Come smeared with cookie dough. Do you have a cookie? Oh, no. Well, the evidence speaks against you. And that lying never changes. It just gets more sophisticated. You get better at it. People lie to themselves every day, especially they lie, we lie to ourselves about how good we really are. And the reason for that, please understand this, and I'm nearly through, we compare ourselves to the wrong standard. See, you'll never give an account for your life to me. There are religious movements that keep people in bondage, telling them that they have to answer to another human being, but that's all it is. It's bondage and tradition. The only person you will ever have to answer to with your whole life is the God who gave you life in the first place. Jesus knew that. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, on the day of judgment, men will give account for every idle word they speak. You know how many idle words I've said in my lifetime? Do you know how many times I've lied? Do you have any idea how many times you've lied? Just lying alone without thinking of lusting and envy and hatred, without the dark thoughts that wish people harm and sometimes wish people dead, without the envy that says that that person has no right to the life they're enjoying and that should be you, and you've been at least as good and worked at least as hard as they are, and why do they have that and all these ugly, dark things that we would never admit to anyone under any circumstances, all of those things are what the Bible calls sin. Their rebellion against God, they're ignoring the author of life. And the way people comfort themselves, the way I comfort myself, is forgetting the judge who is God alone and saying, I'm doing better than that guy. And I might always be doing better than someone as long as you let me do the choosing. People lie about everything. They lie to each other, they lie to themselves. 
A very interesting Harvard-trained economist has written a book called Everybody Lies. And he's pulled back the curtain. It's a disturbing book. I can't even recommend it because he got down to the real facts, not by talking to people, but by examining as a data scientist enormous amounts of Google searches. Because he discovered something. People won't tell the truth to others or even to themselves, but they'll tell Google the truth. And that's how he found out that people have this inflated concept of themselves so that 40% of engineers claim to be in the top 5%. 25% of high school seniors say that they're among the 1% in getting along with people. 90% of college professors say that they do above average work. Do the math on that, it doesn't work. Why? Because spiritually we sin, and the sin itself, the rebellion against God, makes a delusion settle over us. That's his word, not mine. He's not talking about God. He's talking about human nature. He calls people deluded and Jesus knows the truth. There is a God, a loving, holy, but just, unfailingly just God who will call all of his creatures to account. Another portion of Scripture says that everything is naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that's not me. You may have already forgotten my name, you may never see me again, and it doesn't matter, but you have. That's why I say I'm a dying man preaching to dying people, because the God who made you and loves you will someday call you to account on this basis. How have you done with my standard? And the answer will be, I've blown it. And then the only life-saving question with the right answer that you can give that will follow is this, what have you done with my son? the one who lived publicly, the one who died on purpose to save you. Listen to how Paul explains it in Romans chapter 4. Speaking of Jesus, he says, who was betrayed and crucified because of our sins. It wasn't his own, he had none. He was betrayed and crucified because of our sins and he was raised from the dead because of our justification. And this translation digs into the Greek to help you understand the concept and add some words to give you the full meaning. Jesus was betrayed and crucified because of our sins and was raised from the dead because of our justification, meaning he was raised for our acquittal, absolving us of all sin before God. That was done in public. That was done on purpose. And the last thing and the reason we celebrate is this. This is all very personal. If you notice, Jesus is dealing with one group at a time. He's talking to individuals. This is the way he always operates. He never calls the crowds to himself. He explains himself. He presses his reality. He presents his reality of his person to large numbers of people, but as God, He only deals with one individual at a time. And this morning, my hope and prayer, if you don't know Him and you don't have the certainty of eternal life, is that He's dealing with you. And that you're willing at this point to do what Jesus said at the end. Look at the very end of the chapter. Jesus says, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That's all I am. I'm a witness. 
A witness to what? A witness to the reality of Jesus who is asking you, inviting you, compelling you now to turn around. Give up on religion. Give up on moral self-improvement. And throw yourself on Him person to person. Throw yourself on His mercy so that you will have what He promised, the forgiveness of your sins. Let me be here as clear and practical as I can. Here's the greatest mistake I see as a pastor who celebrated a lot of Easter's now. People come and hear the familiar story. They're comforted by it, and they make this fatal mistake. They say, that was good. I'm going to go out and try harder. You go out and try harder, you'll fail again. It's never been about what you can do for God. That's religion. Religion gives you a long list of things and says, if you do these things well enough, long enough, maybe someday you'll climb up high enough. And that's why religious people are so often self-righteous, because they're deluded too, and they think they've done enough. Jesus says, I take care of all of it. I live in your place publicly. I die on a cross publicly, not for my sins, but for yours. What does he ask from you? Repentance. And that's the hardest thing in the world, for people to humbly admit the kind of people who say, I'm in the top 5%, I'm in the 1%. Any, any failure on my part is certainly a misunderstanding. For people like us filled with pride to say, Jesus, I give up, save me. It's the hardest thing in the world. In fact, it takes a miracle. And my prayer to God right now is that you would have your miracle this morning and that this God who deals with people one at a time would deal with you right now and you would talk to him and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I accept your sacrifice in my place. Let's pray. Let me give you a moment to yourself now. If you don't have the absolute certainty of eternal life, if you've heard this all before, but you have a doubt in your heart, your conscience speaks against you, and you have a doubt in your heart about what it will be for you, Whenever God calls you to account, may I invite you in the name of Jesus to turn around, give up on yourself, stop trying to do better and admit your guilt before God and say, God, the guilt and the shame and my troubled mind and this secret life, it's all awful. It's all sin. And I'm sorry. Jesus, you died for me. Please give me your life. Give me the eternal life that you have. Take charge of my life and teach me to follow you. I accept you as my Savior and put you in charge. If you'll pray something like that, you don't need the right words. You don't need my words. A man who was dying beside Jesus said simply to him, remember me when you come in your kingdom. It's not much of a prayer, but Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. In other words, Jesus, who deals with people one at a time, he knows the truth about whether you're fighting him or putting him off, you're postponing this, or you're humbly saying, yes, Jesus, I believe right now. If you do that, tell him so. Person to person. He'll know, he'll understand. He's alive, he's real, he's God. And he'll welcome you through his grace and give you eternal life. If you do that this morning, all we ask, all I would ask as a pastor is that you take that card in your bulletin and let us know. 
Why? That doesn't clinch it. That doesn't complete it. It just announces it. It's a very small way of going public yourself, of being unashamed. Practically, it helps us on your terms, help you grow in this new life that Jesus will give you this morning if you turn to Him. We'll give you a Bible. We'll teach you the basics of how to begin walking with Him. We're all on this road of discipleship together. No child of God better than the other. Just some who've walked with Him longer who can help the others. So if, that's, if this is your time, if he's calling you, my simple invitation is that you would turn to him in repentance. Ask him to be your Savior and your Lord. And then simply to let us know, because Jesus said, when a sinner repents, there's a celebration in heaven. And it's the joy of God that's the center of the party. Lord, help those who are struggling. Help the skeptic. Paul was once a skeptic. I myself was once a rebel. I was so proud, Lord. You, you remember and you deal with me still, but you deal with grace because Jesus died for that pride and he covered it with his righteousness. And these lies, these self-delusions, these secret lives that every person brings into every church meeting, you died for those things. So call those who need you and let them come across the line of faith with certainty and security and joy. And let them experience, even now, Lord, the great relief that you give those who trust Jesus instead of themselves. Give them also, Lord, the simple grace and courage to let another person know, even if it's on a card, what they've decided so that we may love and serve you together. In Jesus' name, amen.